Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, my annual Christmas supplemental episode. For the past couple of years, I've released this supplemental episode on the wise men, but I never really explained why. To do that, I need to back up to well over a year before I began doing this podcast. In December 2014, I was asked to lead an ad hoc small group Bible lesson on Christmas morning. I was living in Atlanta at the time, and we had plenty of adult friends who were not going to be able to make it home to their far-flung families. Our tradition had been to host these friends for brunch. Everyone would bring a dish, and we would enjoy the morning. For that lesson, and as amazing as the Christmas story is, I wanted to do something different, something new, something about the background characters. And I pulled this together, a lesson I'll get to in a minute. Everyone seemed to enjoy it and learned a little, and I enjoyed it too, the process. A month or two later, and after bringing up history topics in our normal small group, I decided to give podcasting a go, and it didn't go well. I did, if memory serves, at least 30 takes on the first episode. Finally, I decided enough was enough, and perfection was getting in the way of progress, so I released it. I made it through about 15 episodes, and it wasn't getting any better. So, I pulled the plug and stopped. But it never really left. Several months would pass, and I felt this push to restart the podcast. So I rebranded it, reworked the scripts, and most of all, I just relaxed. And it flowed. Somewhat. Like anything, the more you do something, the better you get. And I hope I'm better today than I was in the beginning. Anyway, that first year, after I gave the podcast a reboot, Christmas was coming, and the next topic to cover was Sodom and Gomorrah, about as far from the Christmas story of grace and redemption as you could get. And with that, thus began the Magi tradition. So, that's the introduction to the introduction. I hope you enjoy it, and have a Merry Christmas. This is the Christian History Podcast, supplement number one. So when I left off last week, I teased that this week's episode was the second part to Sodom and Gomorrah. But then I came to the realization that this episode would be released the week of Christmas 2016. And of all the stories in the Old Testament, nothing is really further from the New Testament theme of grace and redemption than the fire and brimstone of Sodom and Gomorrah. So for the first time, I'm creating a supplemental episode. Sometime in the future, when the historical chronology of the Bible warrants it, I'll work this episode into its proper sequence. But if you download it when it's released, you know that this week I've skipped ahead a couple thousand years. And with that long-winded introduction, let's get started. This is Supplement 1. Who were the wise men? Of all the characters in the Nativity story, 
The three wise men are by far the most fun. To a scene that would otherwise seem stark and downright gloomy, considering a hazardous berth, a cranky innkeeper, a dirty stable, not to forget uncivilized shepherds, the three wise men add sparkle, mystery, and majesty. They hearken of something bigger yet to come. At the time, they had to seem well out of place. It's no wonder that many young actors in their school are more likely church plays when offered the choice between the principal characters of Mary or Joseph and the roles of the prestigious visitors. They opt for the velvet robes, the gold foil turbans, and the paper boxes with glued-on jewels. These unexpected visitors to the manger always look splendid and remarkably fresh following such a long journey. However they looked, there is one lingering question. Who were they? More specifically, were these figures magi or kings from Tarsus, Seba, Sheba, and possibly further locations east? To answer this, we should consider Solomon, reputed to be the wisest man who ever lived. Could he have also been a prophet? In Psalm 72, it was written, maybe by Solomon himself, May the kings of Tarsus and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. So this begs the question, where were these cities? The name Tarshish occurs in the Old Testament with several uncertain meanings, most frequently as a place, possibly a large city or region, far across the sea from the land of Israel and Phoenicia. Tarshish was said to have supplied vast quantities of important metals to Israel and Phoenicia. And not to forget, gold is an important metal, as well as one of the three gifts brought by the Magi. The same place name occurs in Akkadian and Phoenician inscriptions indicating that it was a real place. But, its actual location was lost in history. Its importance stems in part from the fact that Ezekiel chapter 27 points to it as a source of King Solomon's great wealth in metals, specifically silver, but also in gold, tin, and iron. Isaiah chapter 23 says that the metals were reportedly obtained in partnership with King Haram of the Phoenician city of Tyre, via Tarshish ships. However, Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, and along with its destruction, so was destroyed the archaeological evidence of any such economic relationship. However, the existence of Tarshish in the western Mediterranean along with any Phoenician presence in the same area before 800 BC, was questioned by some more recent researchers, primarily because of the lack of evidence. The Septuagint, Vulgate, and Targum of Jonathan considered Tarshish and Carthage to be one and the same. However, other biblical commentators as early as the 17th century AD read it as Tartessos in ancient Hispania, near modern-day Seville, Spain. Either way, None of these locations are east of Bethlehem, and the actual location may have been lost forever. Next in Psalms was Sheba, which I touched on many episodes ago. Most researchers consider Sheba to be the same as the ancient civilization of Saba in the south of the Arabian Peninsula, but local traditions in many countries think that it's elsewhere. The most well-known mention of Sheba is the story of the Queen of Sheba from 1 Kings chapter 10. She traveled to Jerusalem to speak with King Solomon, arriving in a large caravan with precious stones, spices, and gold. Now, it's important to note that this list could include all the three gifts brought by the wise men. 
The apocryphal Christian Arabic text, known as the Book of the Rolls, considered part of Clementine literature, and also the Syriac Cave of Treasures, mention a tradition that after being founded by the children of Saba, a son of Joktan, Sheba had a succession of 60 female rulers up until the time of Solomon. Josephus, in his Antiquities of the Jews, describes a place called Saba as a walled royal city of Ethiopia that Cambyses II renamed Meora. He wrote that it was encircled by the Nile, as well as two other rivers, the Astabus and the Astaborus. This offered protection from both foreign armies and river floods. According to Josephus, it was the conquering of Saba that brought great fame to a young Egyptian prince. His name was Moses. But neither southern Arabia nor Ethiopia are east of Bethlehem either. Last in Solomon's list is Saba. Now first considering that the spelling of Saba and Seba are different in only one letter, so they could be one and the same. But if you stick with the literal, and that they are two different places, well, little is known about Saba. Except that according to the Table of Nations, one of Cush's sons had the same name. Oh, and there is a dialect of the Bantu language in the nation of Congo that is called Saba. But as far as I can tell, that may be merely a coincidence. Then, and not from Solomon himself, but from sheer geography and history, there is Parthia. This empire at the time of the birth of Christ was east of Bethlehem, in fact less than 100 miles or about 160 kilometers from the manger. The Parthians, since it included Persians, were noted scientists and especially astronomers. And that leads us back to the wise men. The Gospel of Matthew is the only source for the three visitors, and he used the Greek word magi, which signified wise men in general. He stated that it was a rising star that led them towards the baby. In fact, instead of paraphrasing, I'll just quote the entire passage from the New Revised Standard Version, beginning in chapter 2. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is this child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all of Jerusalem with him. And calling together all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them, went the star they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
and having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Now this passage makes me, at least, believe that the men were astronomers, which is also what the early church imagined them to be. Even so, it is just as hard to say what type of heavenly phenomenon the wise men could have seen. It was possibly a supernova. One nova, albeit probably not bright enough to be considered a supernova, apparently did appear, bordering the constellations Capricornus and Aquarius during the spring of 5 BC. But Chinese records, which describe this object, imply that it was apparently not very conspicuous at all. It could also have been the conjunction of Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars in the constellation Pisces that occurred on February 25th, 6 BC. Or possibly a comet, since extra-biblical sources claim the star's beams were often set to stream and wave like a flying bird. But, in the Greek and Roman world, comets foreshadowed deaths or disaster, not births. However, it is nearly certain that these magi were neither Greek nor Roman. They had been instructed, according to John Chrysostom, a 4th century priest and scholar, that one particular bright star would announce the coming of a child. Apparently, the Magi found in Matthew knew it was a king's star. If our only sources of information to who were the wise men were stories, songs, and movies, we'd have many misconceptions about these men. Fortunately, the Bible gives us some answers to the question. First, though, let's work through some of the common misconceptions. The first is that there were three wise men. It is true that the Bible names three gifts. Second century artwork portrays two to four magi, and medieval artists depict up to twelve. In fact, in Eastern Christianity, especially in the Syriac churches, the magi often number twelve, but Matthew does not tell us the exact number. The next misconception is that they were kings. You may be familiar with the Christmas carol, We Three Kings. While it is true that the nature of their gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, suggest wealth, but there is no mention that they were kings. They were probably astronomers from Persia. In addition to being skilled in the science of the heavens and stars, they were also probably extremely knowledgeable in philosophy, natural science, and medicine. There is also the belief that they were named Gaspar, Malachi, and Balthazar. But in fact, these names were popularized by Amal and the Night Visitors, a one-act opera from the 1950s A.D. The names themselves actually were originally found in the 7th century manuscript. In the end, Matthew does not tell us their names. The next misconception is that they rode camels. Once again, Matthew is silent on their mode of transportation. I think the only thing for certain is that they did not ride flying carpets. Then there is the problem of direction. Another common misconception is that the star that they saw was in the east. Again, there is a familiar song, Star of the East. Actually, the star was in the west. Matthew says that the wise men were in the east when they saw the star. And then, probably the biggest misunderstanding of them all. And that is that they found Jesus in the manger. Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, and of course, baby Jesus were also there all on Christmas Day. But Matthew doesn't even mention a manger. 
Luke, in chapter 2, states that the shepherds were the only ones to visit the manger on Christmas Day. But Luke doesn't mention the Magi. We can, though, from the passages in the two books, piece together an approximate timeline. First, of course, Jesus was born. Then angels appear to the shepherds, who then visit the manger. By the way, their sign was the manger, not the star. Eight days later, Jesus is circumcised, and six weeks later, Jesus is consecrated in the temple. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus go back to Bethlehem and live in a house, with Joseph being a carpenter and all. And finally, the wise men arrive. Given this order, the wise men probably arrived somewhere between six months and two years after Jesus was born. Why up to two years? Herod wanted to know when the baby was born, so he inquired exactly when the star appeared. From the information he learned from the wise men, he ordered the killing of all the baby boys up to two years old. In the end, there are many things we do not know about the wise men, but we do know one thing. They were searching diligently for the one who they considered to be born king of the Jews. And they themselves probably weren't even Jewish. These men were Gentiles. They probably did not have the Hebrew scriptures, yet they set out on a long, perilous journey to honor a baby from a different religion. Then again, being the educated men they were, and also knowing many of the Hebrew scriptures had made it to Persia during the exile period, Maybe they did have the writing foretelling of a coming Savior. They left their homelands and began a journey across a desert to search for a king without knowing when or where the journey would end. They then found a king, but he was the wrong one. He was King Herod, but they had the courage to announce to him that he was to be displaced. Upon hearing this, everyone knew that Herod could have these men executed. After all, in the recent past, Herod had executed three of his own sons and an untold number of rabbis. It would have been nothing to him to execute these few foreigners. Instead, as found in extra-biblical sources, Herod took them in and invited them to dine. Herod co-opted the Magi to spy on the child and report back, and they were happy to oblige. In the end, though, a dream intervened and warned them not to they were told to return by another way, and starless this time, with no God-assisted steering. It is thought that they took two laborious years to make it back, seeking directions from everyone en route. And John of Hildesheim wrote, And so you see the difference between divine and human operations, and also the lack of GPS. About the three gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, well, why these gifts? Well, gold is easy. It was valuable then, just as it is today. It is also a gift fitting a king. Frankincense, though, has lost its value and meaning over time. Then, it was a costly perfume, perhaps symbolic of the incense burnt by priests in the temple. And myrrh, well, that was probably a bit of foreshadowing. At the time, myrrh was an embalming substance, maybe in reference to the sacrifice Jesus would make some 30 years later. Mary and Joseph, of course, were a bit off guard. This was quite a baby shower, and not really the practical gifts they needed, and definitely were not expecting. And one more curious factoid. In Cologne, Germany, 
in probably one of the most beautiful Gothic cathedrals in the world, sits what is called the Shrine of the Three Kings. Now forget for a minute that it's misnamed and focus on something else. And that is that the gilded and decorated triple sarcophagus reportedly contains the bones of the wise men. I'll post a picture of it, and maybe at some point in the far-off future, I'll cover its history too. Just not today. Next week will be the continuation of Sodom and Gomorrah. You don't want to miss it. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. And if you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. One more thing, go to iTunes and give the podcast a positive review. And to everyone, thanks for listening, have a great week, and a Merry Christmas.